So we're joined here today, Brian and myself, uh, with Jim Catto from Sheffield. Jim's a surgeon. He's led a recent JAMA oncology paper um, looking, comparing robotic surgery with um, open surgery for cystectomy. And you might be aware, if you're unlucky enough to listen to our show on a regular basis, last week we did a podcast with Ananya Chowdhury. I have to say Jim was brilliant and actually convinced me and Brian that we don't really need to do surgery in any patients anymore <laughs> because trimodality therapy, or even, dare I say it, even not doing the TURBT, you know, that, that deep TURBT that's done in the US, the dual therapy of, uh, of radiation and concomitant chemo radiation has very similar results. And to back that up, she really was quoting some retrospective data um, Lancet Oncology paper in the last couple of weeks, and we discussed that in detail. Um, but essentially, it's a, a case control study. Uh, I think it's two or three to one a case control retrospective analysis um, um, from a couple of institutions, uh, which essentially showed actually pretty good outcomes for cystectomy, but equally good outcomes for trimodality therapy. We're not going to go through the detail of trimodality therapy now. If you want to do that, we did that last week. But, but Jim, we, you know, the problem I've got with this, I guess, is that, that it's a pretty debilitating operation having your bladder removed. The key to the spare trial, and, and Anya made this point, was when patients were offered the equipoise of randomization. Many of them actually wanted to have radiation therapy and not have their bladder removed. Salvage cystectomy looks like a feasible procedure. And why are we putting these patients through these debilitating operations? Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Brian. Uh, a lot to unpack from there. Uh, firstly, <laughs> listen, I'm not... Apologies. Uh, I'm uh, happy to uh, countenance all views. Uh, what I would... i take a step back. Okay, take a step back. Firstly, um, of the patients who come into our clinic with muscle-invasive bladder cancer, only a minority are suitable for trimodal therapy. And, and my evidence for that is the Toronto series. So that was the Lancet Oncology, Alex Lotter, three series from three really enthusiastic centres, Toronto, Mass General and UCLA. And in that cohort, only 29% of patients had trimodal therapy. So 70% weren't eligible. And if you look at SPARE, look at RADAR, you look at the inclusion criteria BC 2001, you know, excluding people with significant hydronephrosis, excluding CIS, unifocal 7cm T2 tumours, that is the minority of muscle invasive bladder cancer. We, we wrote up our series of the last thousand cystectomies in Sheffield uh, a couple of years ago. 60% are T3 bulky hydronephrosis, bilateral carcinoma in situ. So, so in a population of very focused, uh, uh, defined patients, I completely agree with what Ananya is saying, but that isn't the burden that I see. I also think, sorry Brian, I also want to take a step back. What are the problems in muscle invasive bladder cancer? Firstly, a third of patients don't get any radical treatment. So let's not argue about surgery radiotherapy. Let's try and work out why so many people are getting no radical treatment. And then, and then secondly, let's go to the other extreme. What about the people who get radical treatment, surgery or radiotherapy? They've got T3B, N1 disease. They're not being cured. So we need to be joining up together. And I think the paradigm with colorectal cancer, where you maybe get short course neoadjuvant radiotherapy combined with immunotherapy, then, then surgery. I think that's the area to be going rather than, rather, rather than arguing about this 29%. Jim, I wanted to ask from that Zlata series, 
Um, I know only about a third of patients got trimodality therapy. Yeah. Is that because they weren't eligible, or is that just the bias of the institution? Well, one of the problems with the data is that the, uh, they have an inclusion and exclusion criteria which are suggestive. And the wording is along the lines of were agreed by the MDT in Toronto. So I don't think we know fully exactly, but, but we clearly know from clinical trials, uh, which RADAR was the most recent in the UK, spare beforehand, we clearly know exclusion criteria and we know that the Mass General have, have reported those in the past. So, so we have a lot of people with bilateral hydrogenophrosis, a lot of people with widespread CIS. Um, I don't see that many people with unifocal T2 uh, disease. So, so my first question is that. If I go back to Ananya, and I, and I agree that that's the evidence, and she's recently done a really nice paper in JCO where they looked at people with no positive disease. Um, uh, I think in no positive disease, again, she showed good evidence. So I, I completely i am open to what Ananya is saying, uh, and it could be broader. But, but I think there are kind of three or four tenants for radiotherapy that we need to have. Firstly, um, I don't think the cure rates are, equivocal, are equivalent. So firstly, we know that if you had 100 tumours, some of them are radio-resistant, just the biology of such. Yeah, Tom, you've done work on this. Brian, you understand this. So, so of all tumours, some will be radio-resistant, and we don't know. MRE11 doesn't pull them out. We don't know how to identify those radio-resistant tumours, and that could be up to a third. Um, secondly... Um, if you look at SPARE, and SPARE is a great study, Tom, as you know. I don't know if you saw the BJUI long-term SPARE outcome. They wrote the report up. And in 40 patients... So, Jim, SPARE is a study which we tried to randomise radiotherapy versus um, cystectomy. And it's closed early because we were unable to randomise. That's right, that's right. And, and of 40 patients who were randomised, uh, there were significantly higher disease failure rates... Uh, with radiotherapy. So in terms of um, uh, uh, metastasis and local, local regional disease-free survival was completely significantly uh, 0.006. And in terms of overall survival, the hazard ratio was three times higher for death with radiotherapy than surgery. The p-value is 0.06. One more patient would have shown significance towards surgery. So even in a study where we've randomised only 40 patients, we're almost seeing significantly better survival with surgery than radiotherapy. And that, that's not bad radiotherapy. That's not particularly great surgery. It's the biology of the disease. So firstly, I'm not sure survival element, uh, I'm not sure the evidence for survival equivalence is really there. And biologically, it doesn't make sense. I do get that with surgery there's a mortality, so I'm not belittling that, we'll come to that in a minute. Secondly, I don't know if salvage cystectomy is effective and safe, the evidence is very, very uh, contradictory. Yeah, if you look at the Christie, they showed equivalence, if you look elsewhere in, in Germany, they had much worse rates of survival. So, so, so they're a mix, and, and, and like all things, it's going to be apples and, apples and pears, some, some series will show better than others. Um, but my final point, Tom, is about quality of life. I don't think there is evidence that quality of life is better with radiotherapy. Ananya will tell you your own bladder is your best bladder, and that is completely right if you haven't got bladder cancer in it. If you have got bladder cancer in it, that isn't necessarily the case. And we've got two bits of evidence for that, Tom. Firstly, we did a PROM study. The NHS paid for a PROM study, patient-reported outcomes across all populations in the UK. Uh, it was done by... Um, the uh, Department of Health. We wrote it up, but we had nothing to do with it. And in that population, the worst quality of life was the population that had radiotherapy for bladder cancer. So in a comparative population, uh, 
quality of life is worse with uh, radiotherapy. We also did a separate, much larger piece of work, 2,000 patients, where we looked at quality of life across all disease stages. And what drives quality of life in bladder cancer is not treatment or disease, it's age, it's frailty, it's competing morbidity. So your quality of life, if you had a TRBT or a radiotherapy or radical cystectomy, is no different uh, between the treatments, but it's different if you're 80 or 60 or if you've got one or two long-term comorbidities. So I don't think there is evidence that you're better with the quality of life with radiotherapy than you are with surgery. I think, I think we don't know, and I think actually it's not too bad with surgery. So Jim, one of, one of the most surprising things that Ananya said was that she didn't think multifocal disease or CIS was a contraindication to trimodal therapy. I had, way I had always been trained, you know, was that it certainly was, yes. but, but she sort of made the case that, that, that it wasn't. How would you respond to that? Well, I, I wouldn't like to comment on to say that um, Nick James also doesn't think that. Nick James also doesn't think about TURBT being important. And I think, you know, a lot of this, is, I guess, has come from Bill Shipley. Is that right, Brian? And I think historically he's defined all these protocols. Um, I think CIS is a marker for bladder function. And I think if you've got widespread bladder, widespread CIS, then you've probably got a poorly compliant bladder, you've got frequency, you go to the toilet a lot, you've got nocturia. That's probably not a great bladder to give radiotherapy to. I think if you've got tumour on one side of the bladder and some associated CIS on the outside, then that's probably okay for radiotherapy. Um, Jim, in the Lotta series, um, there was some confusion around adjuvant and neonic confusion, inconsistency around the adjuvant and neoadjuvant chemotherapy. And in BC 2001, there was um, also no evidence in that subset that neoadjuvant chemotherapy was of benefit. And indeed, there's been a neoadjuvant trial which also didn't show with radiotherapy it was beneficial. Um, what do you make of this retrospective data series and how does that compare to these two recent prospective randomized trials that you've done, albeit not with radiotherapy as a control arm, cystectomy versus um, versus robotic surgery, how does the how do the two data sets compare in your mind? Because when I read the data, I could see you know contemporary randomized trial for robotic surgery, but actually you know BC two thousand and one and the and and the Beacon trial are both twenty years old and the outcome wasn't that great. And so I was a bit concerned that the two data sets weren't necessarily as strong as each other. Yeah, well. Tom, you and I and Brian, we are uh, uh, trialists, and I, I don't believe anything. I struggle to believe things below level one randomized trials. And if you look at the, the paper in Lancet Oncology from Alex Lotter, all you need to do is look at the survival curves. And what that tells you is that immediately after radical treatment, the two survival curves separate for metastases. So within a month of radical cystectomy, you've got more metastases than with radiotherapy. And they keep separating until you get to uh, five years. So it tells you they're not very well matched because there is no biological sense why you'd get such an early separation. And you know, Tom, in your field, with uh, immunotherapy versus cisplatin, for example, bladder cancer, you get an initial separation and they come together. And that's showing you about the treatment biology. I think when you've got a cohort where you've got 29% of patients, you've got different numbers flying around, you've got two different methods of principal component uh, analysis and sort of matching, both of which are having to be presented. So I'm guessing the statistical review is nervous. You've got 
a paper where you've got two pages of statistical analysis explanation and only four lines on a selection criteria. It just makes me very nervous about there's a lot of manipulation going on here. You've got a medium follow-up of four years, but the Kaplan-Meier Kaplan curves go out to 15 years. So, so I don't know if I really believe a lot of this data, but I think what Alex and what Ananya have shown is that in the right patients, radiotherapy is a very good treatment and it's certainly equivalent to surgery. And, and, and that is a significant population, but it's not the majority of the disease. And, and I come back to my earlier point. Um, I'm more interested in saying how can we get more treatment going for people who aren't getting radical treatment and how can we work together to try and improve the survival for T3 or T4 disease? Jim, what do you expect? What do you expect from the What do you expect from the outcome of a patient who, in your robotic series, in what what's the relapse-free survival and the oval survival for a patient who is eligible for robotic surgery, and how important is robotic versus open surgery? I, should, I don't think it makes a difference in terms of survival. So in um, IROC, which was in JAMA, uh, we uh, didn't see a difference in survival. And that was the same with Razor, which was the US equivalent. And, and, so, and how so, many patients in these studies, Jim? Uh, three, 300 in each, 300 approximately, three, 304 and 310, I think it was. So, so, so over 300. We've done a meta-analysis where we've combined them together with a couple of other smaller trials. And we, and we don't see a difference. I think... You know, there is something, Tom, about a different distribution of metastases. So you, with robotics, you do get a slightly different uh, distribution of metastases, and maybe that's due to the CO2 pressures. But biologically, I don't think it makes any sense. I, I, I think neoadjuvant is key. I think early treatment is key. Whether people need any treatment, I don't know if they've had a good response to neoadjuvant uh, treatment, and, and that's a more interesting hypothesis. Um, I, I think surgery is all about having a good surgeon and getting faster recovery. The biggest impacts in terms of cystectomy have been the enhanced recovery pathways, ERAS. That's made a massive difference in terms of morbidity and recovery. And I think the, uh, the robot is the icing on the cake. You know, it's another level of improvement. But it's all, it's all been done in patient selection, treatment, prehabilitation, enhanced recovery. They're more important. Jim, I just wanted to back up one second to what percent of patients that walk in your clinic do you think are eligible for trimodal therapy? <laughs> well, it wasn't the majority. Yeah, so in Sheffield, you know, uh, we're a big surgical unit, but, but that's not by design, that's by our population. And even in COVID, we were trying to push as many people away from surgery for all the reasons you can imagine. In Sheffield, it's about 10 or 20 percent. And, and that's because, firstly, most people in a good unit with good anaesthetists, with good multidisciplinary care are fit for surgery. And secondly, we have a fast pathway with trials and enthusiastic oncologists. We have Saida Sane comes and sits in our clinics. Uh, we have a great friend of the show. So I don't know. I mean, I would say, Brian, that 30 percent would be the answer, because that's that's where someone like Toronto, who are enthusiasts, have got it to. And Toronto got a great team. I've been there. We've been there. They've got a great multidisciplinary team. Sri Carla, fantastic oncologist. You know, uh, Rob Bristow before he left, great oncolo radiation oncologist. So, so they have a good team. So if they're saying 20 to 30 percent, then that's the case. My only exception to that would be whether the patient who flies into Toronto or flies into Mass General or flies into LA is the same patient I see getting the bus to Sheffield. I think they're probably a different population. I've been on that bus. It's a terrific journey. Um, so uh, in the UK was recently asked, British, the great British public was recently asked if they'd like to go to the moon on a trip, a trip to the moon. And um, most 
people said no. Uh, the commonest reason for them saying no was there was not enough to see. Um, but behind that, <laughs> it, would t- it would take too long. So the two reasons, not enough to see, take too long. Is the problem here in these radiotherapy and surgical trials is that actually there isn't enough injection of enthusiasm to do bigger, more robust studies. And is all that going to change, Jim, because of the introduction of immune therapy? We now, there is enough to see. There are seven neoadjuvant trials with surgery. There are two perioperative studies with immune therapy, with radiation therapy. Do you think we are going to sort of uncover or pull back the curtain and really find out what's going on with this group of studies? Uh, If the outcome of the surgical trials are fabulous, it could change things, or those radiation studies could come through and show actually fabulous perspective randomized data. What do you think the future holds? Uh, I hope so, Tom. I think uh, success breeds success, doesn't it? And so in the UK, having run IROC, and we recruited IROC ahead of schedule, so in the urological community, we're up for this. And so, you know, uh, we're now running Gusto, which is uh, Brian. So Gusto is... um, we're taking people's TRBT across the UK, multi-centre, 16 centres. They're sending their specimens into Sheffield. We're doing genomics. We're doing the decipher test. We're allocating them to one of four arms, and we're randomising them to neoadjuvant chemotherapy and cystectomy, or genome-stratified care, which is either straight to cystectomy if we think you're chemo-resistant. Uh, chemo if you've got an infiltrated T-cell tumour, you get neoadjuvant uh, devalumab, chemotherapy, and then adjuvant devalumab with surgery. If we think you've got a, a, a um, sorry, immune infiltrated, they get neoadjuvant immunotherapy only. And then we think you've got a basal tumour, so immune, a chemo response, if you get chemo immuno and then cystectomy. And if you've got a neuroendocrine, you get everything. So we're now starting to try and run uh, treatment allocations by genotype. Now, that's a phase two feasibility. If we show feasibility, Tom, I'd love to run that with radiotherapy. Okay. But in my, in my committee meetings in the UK, it feels like there are one or two different schools of radiotherapy in the UK at the moment, so I don't know what that's like in the US. Um, Brian, I don't know how collaborative they all are. Certainly in surgery at the moment, we've come together because of our successes, and we're hoping to do more. I think and those... You go, Brian. I just want to ask a sort of follow-up. First of all, I love your genomically stratified trial. I think that's one of those trials we should be doing. And I was going to ask, all of those trials involved radical treatment. Do you think we can get to a day where radical treatment isn't necessary in a subset of patients who have a clinical CR in their bladder? I think Mac also presented some data at a recent meeting. Yeah, definitely. What does that look like? Definitely, Brian. I I think, you know, Gusto is phase two. And so in about three years, we'll have the outcome of Gusto. And on the back of that, hopefully, we'll have identified the chemo immunoresponsive cohort. And if if in that group, they've got a really high T0 path CR rate, then I think we would have confidence to not go to radical treatment in the follow-up study. Likewise, uh, maybe maybe some of them get bladder sparing, maybe some of those get radiotherapy um, as part of that. And then conversely, we'll work out the group that don't seem to respond and actually need maximal treatment. And so, um, yeah, it's the beginning. It's not going to be the end. It's the beginning. Jim, what do you you think the the practice of the TAR 200, um, um, that's exciting that a Sunrise program yeah. And the Sunrise program includes patients with muscle-invasive urethelial yeah. cancer. I know you're involved in the Sunrise program. Do you want to just talk a little bit about what's going on inside that program and, and why that might be exciting too? 
Well, you know, I, I do. A, I talk a lot about uh, trying to pull back from a direct conflict of interest, which I've got, which is the uh, I'm the global chief investigator of Sunrise Three. I'm heavily involved in Sunrise One, and also heavily involved in Thor Two, which is the Erdafitnit trial from Janssen. If I pull back a little bit, it's a great time to be a urologist. You know, we've got the, we've got the pretzel, we've got a new virus, and stillagen into the bladder. We've got a number of mucohesive uh, products coming to placement. We've got Eurogen. We've got a number of, you know. At the moment, we have mitomycin and BCG. It isn't, that, it isn't going to be like that for very long, is it? And, you know, in Sheffield, we've, we've now got a study called Invest. We're injecting a, a teslizumab into tumours in the bladder directly and looking at that and then doing the cystectomy on them to look at the immune reaction. So, so I think there's a lot going on, Tom. And I think the, the beauty of the pretzel is that uh, you can load different drugs. And I think the idea of loading an FGF inhibitor like erdafitinib or one of the competitors into the bladder and, and directly treating... Uh, uh, low-grade, highly recurrent, real nuisance cancers with these treatments is extremely exciting. I think likewise, maybe radical, but I think the market could be earlier stage. So, Jim, so there was a time when um, I would sit in tumor boards. Yeah, you, you could see I have to struggle to get questions in with Tom. There was a time when um, you'd sit in tumor boards and they say, oh, this young, healthy patient has recurrent high-grade T1, recurrent high-grade T1. Let's just take him to cystectomy. Like, what are we waiting for? Is that changing because of all the drugs you mentioned, because of all this wave of, you know, new BCG refractory, you know? Not I think so. I think, I think so, Brian. I, I did a study called Bravo. The hardest study in my life was Bravo, which was BCG against cystectomy in BCG naive. We did a randomized control trial. We had a feasibility. We had to do 60 in 18 months, and we randomized 51 patients in 18 months. But it became apparent then that, that we could randomise in Sheffield because we, had, we were real, really evangelical in our belief of trials and the evidence, but most people couldn't randomise those two. And, and in fact, we actually, that's really important to me because two people died in the BCG cohort that didn't die in the cystectomy cohort. So I'm not entirely sure that uh, BCG for high-grade non-invasive disease is the best option. But anyway, but, I, but, but we, one of the reasons we didn't take that forward is that quite clearly there's all these other drugs coming. There's a lot going on. And, you know, uh, in terms of immunotherapies, you know, bladder cancer is the drug that is the, is the cancer that's had immunotherapy treatment for longest. So if we can do better than uh, BCG, then that's a great, a lot of options coming, Brian. Yeah. Brian, um, Jim, all good things come to an end. I think we're driving towards <laughs> there. Brian, what are your, I mean, my observations of these two podcasts and uh, I'd like to thank um, both our, our guests for pulling these two series together. I think that the momentum, I think there are a group of people who feel very strongly about radiation therapy. Uh, I think the data they have to support that is not as robust as perhaps some of the data we're used to. And I think there is a degree of faith that's required. Patients are obviously brought into the concept of keeping hold of their bladders. Um, but there is also this other piece um, which I think around the surgery, and Jim, I think you've said today, there does seem to be perspective or more perspective, more recent data around there. And there are reasons why surgery remains attractive. And for most of us, I think remains the standard of care. And, and I wonder, uh, Jim, what would you need to see? And this is my last question. What would you need to see to shift away from that position where you said, actually, for the majority of patients, surgery is more attractive? Uh, I don't know the answer to that, Tom. In my local practice, we don't have a lot of radiotherapy 
therapy capacity. Our, our radiation oncologists are drowning in prostate cancer. So there's not a big people, no, there's not a lot of people knocking at my door going, please, can I treat this patient for bladder cancer? Uh, I, I'm pretty open to, I, I give patients the choice. I refer everyone over who I think is uh, enthusiastic or suitable or even even considering it. You know, Tom, in the NHS, we've got more work than we can cope with. So, so you don't have to convince me. Uh, I think the questions are elsewhere. I think the questions are about treating people radically who aren't getting curative treatment and are about maybe combining uh, forces in the people who need more treatment than they're currently getting. Because at the end of the day, whatever data you look at, half the people who get radical treatment die of bladder cancer within five years. So, so we're missing a big cohort. And, you know, Tom, credit to you, it's the systemic agents that are making a difference. But I think if we could work better locally, radically, that make a difference. Yeah, maybe a final comment. I think when you can't directly randomize patients and compare treatments, then you end up with this data that's very messy, right? And that I can interpret one way and you can interpret it yeah. a different way and it's matched analyses and it's, it, they're called lower levels of evidence for a reason and we end up, you know, with these discussions. But I, I totally agree with the concept of, you know, intensification in patients who need it and de-intensification in patients who don't, but it sounds like we have a, a little ways to get there. Wonderful. Just, thanks. This has been great, Tom. Anything else? It's been magic. No, I think we're good. I think we're good. It's we're awesome. going to see you. We're going to see you soon. And Jim, you'd be you'd be very well. Congratulations on your recent New England Journal paper around prostatectomy and that surveillance sort of versus prostatectomy versus radiation. We'd love to have you back and talk about that sometime. Great. Love to. Thank Fabulous. You. Thanks a lot. Bye bye. Bye.